0: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm here with the victorious professor, Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Uh, hello, Andy. It's not a victory for Akil Amar.
1: We're talking, of course, about Moore versus Harpreet. It's a victory for America, and that's what we're going to talk about today. I think, Andy, is there a Billy Idol song where he he shouts... More, more, more. Maybe not. Um, maybe uh, I'm misremembering. But we're going to talk about more today, obviously, because we're recording this episode on Friday. The more case came down on Tuesday, and we're going to be uploading it, obviously, as
0: uh, always, Wednesday morning. Right, and uh, and we said so last week. We threw in a little thing saying, "Hey, yeah, it happened. We'll talk about it," um, and. Of course since then there have been you know more case, additional cases um yesterday there was a an opinion on the uh, affirmative action case and there's going to be some more opinions today actually while we record this there are probably going to be opinions coming out uh, uh yes actually
1: and even in, in ten minutes we should probably at least log on uh, to see if there's any breaking news here
0: <laughs> but just as a reminder you know if you if you're interested I mean it's you know, it's not exactly theater watching the the opinions come down. But what we tend to do is we look at SCOTUS blog, Amy Howe's uh, great website she started. And- it really is great. I um, mean,
1: Amy, big, big shout out to you. Thank you so much for coming on a previous episode.
0: And we would love to have you back um, when everything settles down. Yes, and the, she has a, a live chat that refreshes itself, so you don't have to keep refreshing your your screen, and and so you can see. Actually, before the opinions even get put up on the Supreme Court website, you'll know, um, you know what what has just been issued. It's not a big <laughs> difference, you know, just a few she, seconds. She but. she
1: gave us a eight minute lead time or six minute lead time, I think, on the affirmative action case because they were still talking about the others, and she said, "Oh, we have the affirmative action cases."
0: Right. And then, you know, once they come down, you can go to, she'll provide you with a link to the opinion, or you can go to SupremeCourt.gov, and they eventually will put the opinions up there. And then you can see, but there's also, you know, commentary in the moment, and it's a little less uh, breathless than what you're going to get from CNN or, you know, or something like that um, in the moment. In fact, uh, Akil has a, uh, starts his book, The Constitution Today, with the story about, Uh, The media reaction to the Sebelius case, right? Yes. Both CNN and
1: Fox, in the moment with live video feeds from the Supreme Court steps, misreported the basic result in the first Obamacare case. They said it had been invalidated. Obama himself, in the Oval, is, or at least in the White House, is watching television monitors in real time and Two major networks, Fox and CNN, are telling him that his signature law has just been invalidated, and it wasn't, because they hadn't even read to the end of the opinion. They did early in the opinion, and they being actually John Roberts, writing for the court, say, we don't think this can be upheld uh, on uh, this law. We don't think this is a, a proper exercise of Commerce Clause authority. And they said, well, done, Obamacare is toast. Not realizing, because they hadn't done their homework, they hadn't read my many op-eds on the topic before the case came down, that there are at least two major bows in the quiver of Obamacare's constitutionality. One, I thought it could be upheld on the basis of the Interstate Commerce Clause, but I said the easier argument is actually it can be upheld as a tax. Um, And I said that's actually – the 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 easier one to get five votes and it's it's absolute but they hadn't done their homework and so they thought oh john roberts is reading about how it can't be upheld under the commerce interstate commerce clause that's it <laughs> they hadn't even read to the end of the opinion um and they're announcing on live tv that obamacare is dead and and they don't correct themselves for a, maybe a minute or two
0: yeah so anyway you won't get that from uh from scoda's blog you'll get, you know, more sober reaction and that's nice. Um, so we do recommend that. Okay. But anyway, so Moore versus Harper, the independent state legislature case uh, was decided and it was 6-2, I think would be the right way to phrase the the vote. Wouldn't you wouldn't you say that, Akil? On the issue of independent state legislature theory, 6-3
1: in result but of the three, only two reached the merits, only Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch reached the merits and said, we believe in ISL theory in a full-throated way. And the third justice who did not join the majority opinion, who dissented as to the outcome, was Justice Alito, and he didn't reach the merits. He just said, I agree with Justices Thomas and Gorsuch, that we should just dismiss the case. And the court actually isn't dismissing the case. The majority, it's reaching the merits. So in result, it's 6-3. Six justices reached the merits and rejected ISL theory uh, and in an opinion authored by the chief justice and joined by five other justices. So six say we should reach the merits and reject ISL. ISL theory, independent state legislature theory. Three say we shouldn't reach the merits at all. But uh, Thomas joined by Gorsuch and Alito. But two of those three said, since the court is reaching the merits, here's our view on the merits. We believe in ISL theory, independent state legislature theory. And Alito didn't reach the issue at all. He simply said, well, since I don't think that we need to reach the issue, I'm not going to opine. So yes, on ISL theory, 6 to two, on result six to three.
0: Okay. So let's get into what the result was. Um, so we're going to do an analysis of the opinion. Uh, we'll go through it. I've just highlighted sections of it. And we'll of course we're, we're going to compare it to our brief because you know the brief set forth our belief as to what a fair argument might be. And I guess uh, questions we might ask you, Akil, are: um, Have you changed your mind about the argument? In other words, maybe now that you've read or, or been exposed to the chief's uh, opinion and his colleagues, maybe you've changed your mind about what the right argument is, um, or maybe not. And uh, also, maybe you know the the chief's argument has uh, conforms with the brief largely, and you know that would be good. In what ways does it differ? Um, so I think these, and then what are the implications of the opinion? Uh, you know, what, what is ISL theory dead? Is it partially dead? Is it, you know, <laughs> is it mostly dead?
1: <laughs> and you're laughing because that's a reference of course, to Billy Crystal's character in the princess bride, in which she explains that there is a big difference between being dead and being mostly dead. And just to um, not leave our audience in suspense, my bottom line is it's a great day for America. It's a very good ruling. It, candidly tracks to a very considerable extent, and happily so. Um, the amicus brief we filed doesn't cite the amicus brief, but who cares about citation? Really, that's not what it's about. It's about um, helping the court get the to the right results. And I hope that um, our amicus brief actually did that. It may not be a total coincidence that on various issues, the opinion basically tracks the analysis that we urged upon the court. Who knows, but our analysis and the court's analysis in the amicus brief and the court's analysis are basically the, the same uh, as to almost everything.
0: You know, it's it's interesting. We, we've talked about citation, you know, on this podcast and perhaps more than, than people might want at times. Um, but. One thing one point that you've made uh, recently is that there can be less citation in uh, the opinion than in a dissent or a concurrence. A
1: majority opinion tends to have on average less citation to scholarship than concurrences or dissents.
0: Yes. Yeah, well this opinion has virtually no citation, virtually none to uh to scholarship it, ha- it it they cite gordon wood at one point for a proposition from the creation of the american republic that's essentially a historical citation and then the great gordon wood yes he's not a law professor but oh
1: he knows lots of constitutional law and he has been on our podcast Andy and and he's done an Ever Scholar event with us and I think he's actually going to be doing another one in January in Florida and we haven't pl- plugged Ever Scholar in the last thirty seconds let's do so in the context of saying yes Ever Scholar features Gordon Wood and our podcast uh, features Gordon Wood oh and the Supreme Court features Gordon Wood because he the man yes
0: you're <laughs> spilling the beans here we are going to have a a very uh, attractive announcement regarding Gordon Wood and Professor Amar, by the way, um, related to this Oh, Evers yeah, College. I'm going to be
1: able to be yeah, be there, too. Yes, uh, this is going to be mm. so cool. The last time we did an event, it was in New York, Andy Ever Scholar and and uh, and Stephen Smith was involved, um, a, a very great, uh, eminent professor at Yale, and, and Gordon Wood was there, and Sandy Levinson, and oh, I got to participate, too. And now we're going to, in effect, do another version of the Akil and Gordon show, and this one's going to be down in Florida. We're not going to change the focus of our discussion today. It's really more versus Harper. But since this Creative 303 case just came down, we'll talk about the merits of it at some future episode. But just a quick, quick look at the thing confirms something that I, I just said, which is you're more likely to get citations to academic scholarship in concurrences or dissents. And the 303 case is a good example. The majority doesn't cite uh, to much scholarship, but the dissent cites to, uh, several, uh, law review and margin
0: articles. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, as we said, that's true in Moore versus Harper as well. Um, so it, it do, and it doesn't cite a lot more versus Harper to, even to the briefs really. Um, so it doesn't cite to our brief, but it doesn't support, doesn't cite to, you know, judge Luddig's uh, brief doesn't cite to the respondents brief. It doesn't respond, re- cite to virtual, to, I, th- I don't think it cites to any briefs in fact so and that's quite common mm-hmm. right so I guess my point here is that if we're looking at our own brief and saying you know well, we had you know certain reasoning that the audience may be familiar with uh, and and we think the opinion tracks that and someone comes back and says, well, what do you mean? you know you're not even cited but that that's not really proof you know that that that, that it doesn't track it this is the point. Okay. So we'll examine it. So let's go through the opinion. Uh, I, I did some highlighting and, you know, not everything uh, is highlighted, of course, that's, that's important, but let's just go through it. So right away, um, chief, first of all, the opinion is written by the chief, Chief Justice Roberts.
1: As befitting a case that is of extra special significance. All the cases that reach the Supreme Court are important, especially to the litigants, but a few of them are Generally reckoned especially important. I think the general media coverage has depicted this as among the most important cases of the term. Maybe maybe, many people think the most important case, and maybe not just of the term, the decade. And it surely would have been had it come out the other way. I I once was talking to a, a friend of mine, a senior colleague, and they had recently been tenured, and I said, you know, tenure doesn't really make much of a difference. He said, well, of course it doesn't make a difference. It's not getting tenure
0: that makes a difference. Right. And I think that's that's absolutely right. You know, the there have been other cases that came out, like the affirmative action case, which we're going to talk about. And that case is a case you're going to feel more on a day-to-day basis. Because it right. invalidates a very common practice. Right. So it's going to change the way things are done. Here, there was an attempt to impose a theory. part of America a theory, which had never been part of American government. And yeah. uh, no, no legislature ever actually acted this way um, in the way that we, we had talked about. And that, and state courts, you know, didn't step in because they couldn't. Um, yeah. That never happened. Um, so, a- Andy, when you and I were in our in, in our uh,
1: misguided youth, we watched, I'm sure, Saturday Night Live right as it launched. And they had a running gag on the news show because the question is like, what is news? And the running gag was that Generalissimo Franco is still dead mm-hmm. okay and and it, that's not news of course you know, he's he's still dead um, now what would have been news is if he had somehow you know uh, risen from the dead yeah uh, messiah like or something boy that would have been news mm-hmm. um and so isl theory is still dead um and i would say not just mostly but uh, you know but dead dead but we'll, we'll talk about just how dead it still is
0: well, and I think a related question uh, that is, how how dead is Bush versus Gore? You know, Yes. Another matter yes. that, you know, so. Okay. Typically, these uh, opinions, you know, start off by kind of laying out the facts of the case. Um, but before the chief does that, he does take a moment to just lay out what the case is about um, in really one sentence for him. And he says at the bottom of page one of the opinion, at the top of page two, we decide today whether that clause, meaning the elections clause of the federal constitution, vests state legislatures with authority to set rules governing federal elections free from restrictions imposed under state law. So that for him is the issue in the case.
1: And by the way, just for our audience, we're going to put up on our website, uh, the PDF of the what's called the slip opinion of the court and Andy, is And you can get that just straight from the Supreme Court's website itself. And Andy is, as he said, just uh, quoting from page one of the actual opinion, page one and two, as opposed to the, um, the what's called the syllabus, which is a little summary of the opinion that precedes the opinion itself and is technically for convenience purposes, but is not an official part
0: of the court's pronouncement. Yeah, and a lot of times people will just read the syllabus, and that's all they'll read. It's often a very good Reader's Digest version of the um, opinion itself. But it's very dangerous to start quoting from it if you, uh, you know, if you're trying to to be authoritative about something.
1: Yeah, and- a lawyer shouldn't actually quote from the syllabus. In fact, it's because it's it's technically no part of the opinion, no no part of, and and it's not. And I'm not sure about this, but I think the practice is it doesn't always go through all the justices. The, they all have to agree on an opinion that they sign on to, but then the, the person who prepared the opinion um, often prepares the syllabus, and that isn't
0: vetted to the same extent. And just FYI, the way that the opinion, is they, that they do page numbers in the opinion, is they number the pages in the syllabus. Uh, starting from one. And then they'll number the pages of the opinion. And again, they start from one. So when I, yes. so when I, so for example, I just told you that was page two, uh, page pages one and two, the, the thing that I just quoted, and it is, but if you were, downloaded it as a PDF, it would actually be pages, you know, page seven. So, uh, so I'm using not the PDF pages, but the pages that it actually says on the print you know, on the print edition here. And just to
1: remind everyone, I did not clerk for the Supreme Court. So what I said about who prepares the syllabus may not be correct. Practices may have changed. My sense is it's often done by the justice who's assigned the majority opinion or the opinion of the court in collaboration maybe with the clerk's office but again my sense is that that doesn't go through all the justices who formally sign on to the opinion but if there's anyone out there who's clerked uh, recently um, or any former justice out there um, or anyone else who who uh, wants to correct uh, us we'd be very grateful if you if you uh, send uh, in any information you might have if i misspoken
0: okay now as as we continue to go through it on the next page page three the 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 chief justice has, go- has begun to go through the facts of the case and he's tracing the the, the path through the, and it's complex here, he's tracing the path through the, uh, the legislature and then the trial court and then the North Carolina Supreme Court and then of course later it comes back to the North Carolina Supreme Court again and so what you wind up is things they call Harper 1 and Harper 2, so it can be a little confusing. But anyway, so as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, so what am I thinking about as I'm reading it? One of the things I'm thinking about is the Chief Justice himself, because he's kind of an interesting character here. Some of the important cases that led up to this um, include the Arizona case and the Rucho case. And the Chief was in dissent in the Arizona case, and then, you know, in the majority, well, actually I think it was unanimous, in Rucho. And, uh, And I think, does he write, Rucho? I think so. Anyway, yes. Yeah. And
1: in that, he goes out of his way, as Andy, we uh, stressed in in our amicus brief, he went out of his way to uh, reaffirm and endorse, embrace, uh, bless uh, the Arizona redistricting case, in which to repeat he was initially a dissenter that was a 5-4 decision he wrote a dissent not the only one but uh, a leading dissent in that case and but but he does believe in precedent that doesn't mean that you can never overturn a precedent Dobbs overturned Roe versus Wade but he does believe that you shouldn't lightly overturn a precedent one standard for overturning a precedent is it should be you should overturn a precedent if and only if it's egregiously wrong. He already had signaled in Rucho that he was on board. He had now embraced this Arizona case, which was a Ruth Bader Ginsburg opinion for, um, for five justices. And just to remind our audience, it said in Arizona, the people of Arizona are allowed to switch certain decisions involving congressional districting and presumably presidential elections as well, to switch those decisions from the ordinary state legislature to a special process, an initiative referendum, um, popular lawmaking process. So uh, the AIRC decision, the Arizona decision, per uh, Justice Ginsburg, Stands for the proposition that the people of a state through their state constitution can in effect redefine the legislature for a federal election purposes. That's in effect saying the state legislature is not independent, does not float freely, it's a creature of the state constitution, and the state constitution can change the legislature and, and create a special legislature for. Federal election purposes. Oh, and if you can do that, then why can't you say, well, we're going to use the regular legislature, but we're going to limit it substantively in this way, in that way, in the other way? And so the deep logic of AIRC is strongly contrary to any kind of strong vision of the independent state legislature theory. And to repeat, Chief Justice Roberts was in dissent in that case, but even before. This term, last uh, this week, he had signaled that he was on board, and we highlighted that in our brief. and And other people and had said, "Oh, you're overreading what he said. Oh, you're taking it out of context. Oh, that was dicta." No, we read him correctly. He, you know, said, "I meant what I said. I said what I meant," and he stood by. Two precedents, Rucho, he wrote, and the earlier AISC case
0: where he was to repeat in dissent. Right. And I think, you know, you mentioned briefly just there uh, that our brief, you know, stressed Arizona and Rucho perhaps more than some other briefs in the case. And so we're and it was really an important part of our of our theory. So we we kind of took the court's precedents as a whole. We didn't sort of game them to say, well, you know, the chief was in dissent here, so maybe he's not really behind this, you know, or something right. like that. We, took we them- did not
1: read it politically. We read it at face value, earnestly, as if actually these are lawyers who are doing law and there are different ways of doing law. People, some people pay more attention to precedent, as we've talked about in many episodes. Others are more textualist, um, or originalist, uh, more historical. But what we didn't, do is just treat them as pauls in robes we treated them as jurists whose pronouncements should be taken at face value in the absence of compelling contrary indications yeah and of
0: course we uh you know we phrased we put we kind of placed this case ahead of time in this context almost as a challenge to the court to say look you know, people are there's people are saying that originalism is bullshit and and it's just whatever you want it to be. And you know, you guys and, are, and, are and, all and, results and, and, oriented yes. and
1: right. And you're fair weather precedent people, you you know, you follow precedents only when you like them, but not when you don't like them. It's not just people saying originalism is BS. People saying law is BS. Precedents is BS too. Um, they're just politicians in robes, and we're saying yes, Andy, stand. In this case, by your precedence, because they're correct precedence and they align with originalism, this should be actually an easy case when the precedence and originalism, text, history, and structure all point in the same direction, even if it's in direction opposite to what some in your political party are pushing. And show the world that you are what you say you are, which is judges and not politicians Is wrong. We actually believe in you. Show the rest of the world um, that you are who you say you are. Yes, Andy, that, that was partly. That's why this case was important, really important, not just On the merits, which it is because it's about the logic of this opinion is about presidential elections and not just congressional elections. And, oh, if a state legislature can float outside its state constitution, well, then what prevents a state legislature in a state like Arizona, where the legislature is a Republican or Wisconsin? Wisconsin, but the electorate, presidential electorate might be democratic. What would prevent a state legisl- legislature from saying, we're going to pick presidential electors, regardless of what the state constitution says? We, imagine the state constitution says, or is plausibly interpreted by the state supreme court to say, no, actually, that's a decision to be made by the people of Arizona under the Arizona constitution, by the people of Wisconsin under the Wisconsin. A constitution so so it's important substantively the 2024 election could hinge on this but it was also important in terms of the credibility of the
0: court as a genuine court of law even though we're happy with how the ISL case came out how Morris Harper came out we have to be be realistic and North Carolina actually has some lessons here um, we're 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 counting on the judiciary, to be a backstop against the state legislature going crazy. But if the state legislature goes crazy and the judiciary doesn't call them on it, that's a problem. So so here in North Carolina, you know, we've got, this came to the Supreme Court in the first place because the North Carolina Supreme Court stepped up and said, you know, your uh, gerrymandering, uh, you know, is, is partisan and violates the state constitution. Um, But then there was a, a, so they're acting as a check on this, on the legislature, but then there's an election and this, and the court takes on a different political character in North Carolina and they say, okay, never mind, (laughs) it's fine. And actually we can't, we can't even stick our nose in there on partisan gerrymandering so that, uh, so that it's no, still no guarantee, especially in states where, uh, where you're electing the judiciary, Um, it's still up to the voters in the end. Um, and we said that in our
1: amicus brief that that's really a feature and not a bug, that state judiciaries are subject to certain um, uh, political checks um, because that's how the state constitutions are written and state peoples are allowed to structure their state constitutions as they wish. They can have a unicameral legislature or a bicameral legislature. They're allowed to have initiative in a referendum process and to divert certain issues like um, federal elections, congressional elections or presidential elections to a a different legislative process. They're allowed to have an elected judiciary or an appointed judiciary, life tenure or 18 years or 15 years or mandatory retirement, subject to the broad outer limits um, that of the republican guarantee clause that a state um has to have in what some shape or form a proper republican government by which small r is meant a government of by and for the people a government that's accountable to the public to the 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 people that's the the race publica the people's thing the public's thing subject to the outer boundaries of that states have very broad authority what couldn't they do well they couldn't for example create a hereditary monarchy and make that immune from subsequent constitutional revision, because that you know would be a forfeiture of the basic essence of democratic self-government, popular sovereignty, what have you. But within those broad limits, if you have a constitution that comes from the people of the state and is regularly revisable by the people of the state, they have – Broad flexibility to repeat unicameral or bicameral legislature and having a gubernatorial veto or not, initiative or referendum or not, elective judiciaries or not. So we say the fact that the North Carolina Supreme Court over the course of the last couple of years, they've changed its mind in part because of elections. That's actually not a bug, that's a feature of the system and in general. The federal Supreme Court and other U.S. courts, lower federal courts, should defer in general to state court decisions on the meaning of state law, because that's how the state constitution has set its system up.
0: Yeah, and what you're saying here also, I think, is that the people actually get to weigh in if they don't like the way the court is interpreting their constitution
1: whereas if the u.s supreme court redecides de novo for itself what the north carolina constitution really quote unquote means if if they say no that's for us to decide the problem is they're not experts in north Car- on north carolina constitution perhaps there's no guarantee that any one of them has ever even set foot in north carolina they did, haven't there's no Guarantee that any one of them has taken the North Carolina bar or studied North Carolina law. And if they mess up, they're not, they're not picked by North Carolinians. And if they mess up, they're not accountable to North Carolinians. And so we said there are reasons why it's law 101 that in general, state courts are the definitive interpreters of state
0: law and that state statutes, that state constitutions, among other things. And we'll come back to that because we're going to, yep. one of the, one of the things that, that is left some, not necessarily open, but less closed than others in this case, um, is what is the role of the federal judiciary now, but we'll get back to that. vis-à-vis so, the state courts just right. so. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, um, I, this, discussion that we just had started with mentioning the Arizona case and Rucho. And the reason that I mentioned that is because I'm explaining that as I'm reading the, the the chief Justice's recitation of the facts, I'm looking to see to what extent he's relying on these precedents on Arizona and Rucho, even in recounting the facts. So I highlighted this portion as he's recounting the facts. Um, He's saying that the North Carolina Supreme court held that the legislative defendants, that is the North Carolina State Legislature, violated state law beyond a reasonable doubt by enacting maps, that's voting maps, that constituted partisan gerrymanders. And there's a cite. It also rejected the trial court's conclusion that partisan, this is the trial court at the North Carolina, concluded that partisan gerrymandering claims present a non-justiciable political question. So in other words, that they have no authority to say anything. Um, This is the trial court. The court acknowledged our decision in Rucho versus Common Cause, which held that partisan gerrymandering claims present political questions beyond the reach of federal courts. Okay, so 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 far he's saying that the trial court said we're not going to touch these bad maps, or, or whether they're bad maps or not, um, because we can't figure because it's a political question, and they That's cited the, tri- right. the state trial court, right? And they cited the U.S. Supreme Court, saying that it's a non nonjusticiable uh, political question. Okay, now, but he goes on, Ju- Chief Justice Roberts. He says, but simply because the Supreme Court again, he's quoting here, for, uh, simply because the Supreme Court has concluded partisan gerrymandering claims are non nonjusticiable in federal courts. In does federal not, courts. Right. It does not follow that they are non-justiciable in North Carolina courts.
1: In state courts. Right. He's saying you've misread uh, what I, John Roberts, wrote in Rucho. I went out of my way to say federal courts should stay out of this, but uh, the partisan gerrymandering thicket. But state courts can, if permitted by their state constitutions.
0: Correct. Okay, the next thing that happens uh, in this recitation of the facts is that the s- Supreme Court, you know, remands it or sends it back to the legislature. They come up with another bad map. You have another case. And what he sa- so he says, two days later, the General Assembly adopted a remedial congressional redistricting plan, but the trial court rejected that plan and adopted in its place interim maps developed by several special masters for use in the 2022 North Carolina congressional elections. So this goes to the question that we're going to, that, that came up in the case of what exactly can the courts do? Can they, is it too far when they insert, when they don't just say to the legislature, no, you violated the constitution, go draw another map, but instead substitute their own map. Okay. And, and now is that going too far? So the, um and that's something that the court is going to have to possibly address here mm-hmm. and so that's the fact that that's in the recitation of facts i thought was important now later on you wind up with this change in the makeup of the north carolina supreme court like we discussed and so he's he goes through that and he says okay this new court in the case which they call harper 2 does various things and what the and the the highlighted portion here for me was The court, that's this new court, did not revisit Harper One's conclusion that the Federal Elections Clause does not shield state legislatures from review by state courts for compliance with state constitutional provisions. And here's the quote from the North Carolina Court. It says, the General Assembly exercises authority, meaning redistricting authority, subject to the express limitations in our constitution and in federal law. Okay, so now what we have is we have North Carolina courts, the North Carolina Supreme Court, and the North Carolina Supreme Court as reconstituted after the election, both of them essentially concluding that ISL does not apply as far as they're concerned. They're saying the federal elections clause, no, it doesn't mean we have nothing to say. It's appropriate for us to review this both of these courts say that and this i think is relevant to the question of mootness right because even the court that re the the new court is still saying that isl is wrong if they said if they believed otherwise they shouldn't be reviewing the case at all correct indeed yes. and that's one of the reasons that the court says
1: even though certain things have happened after we the united states supreme court decided to hear the case after we granted certiorari and had briefing and had oral argument. And then some things happened after all of that in North Carolina, but nothing happened after um, all of that that changes the the relevant legal issues because the relevant legal issue is, uh, in part, can the North Carolina Constitution limit The North Carolina legislature when it comes to congressional elections and and federal elections generally. And as to that, actually, even the the new, what we've been calling the reconstituted North Carolina Supreme Court has the same view. Yes, the Constitution applies, the state Constitution. It can limit the legislature. Oh, and we decide, we the North Carolina Supreme Court decide at the end what that means. Um, we might have a different view of what it means than we did earlier, but on the basic questions, um, does the, con- the state constitution limit the state legislature? Yes. Who decides what that state constitution means? We, the state Supreme Court, not the state legislature, uh, at least for for c- current purposes. On those key questions, nothing relevant changed in North Carolina. And that's part of the reason why the chief justice says, even though some things have happened, um, they don't really affect our ability to decide the issues that we um, set out to decide when we initially granted review, when we granted certiorari. Now, since you're mentioning mootness, Andy, and we did have an episode on the mootness issue, I've got to give a big shout out to Neil Katyal, who insisted actually when there was additional briefing that the case wasn't moot. Good for you, Neil. And a big shout out to Vik who actually wrote things up um, and will put them online saying that, that this case is live for, the, for just the reasons we um, articulated and identified that the North Carolina legislature's position in litigation was the state legislature, the the state constitution has nothing to do with this at all. And that position was not accepted even by the, the more recent North Carolina Supreme Court. So so Vic insisted the case wasn't moot. And he wrote some stuff about it and and, and frankly helped Neil on some of his uh, subsequent filings. And Neil insisted that the case wasn't moot. And actually, the North Carolina legislature said it's not moot. We haven't gotten what we really want, which is total freedom. So why do I mention all of this? Because, oh, a lot of commentators said, oh, it's moot, it's moot, is moot. A lot of other commentators, we never said that. The solicitor General's office actually said, oh, you should just dismiss the case or something. It's moot. And by the way, that would have created very bad incentives. If after the Supreme Court has already begun to hear a case, you know, um, a state court below can kind of yank it away. Um, Never mind, that would have created the possibility for all sorts of gamesmanship going forward. So I think that was a mistaken position taken by Prelogar, the Solicitor General. And I think actually, Andy, after this week's decision came down, I think um, Neil actually even tweeted um, a critique of the SG's position, which is kind of interesting because I believe, Prelogger was kind of Neil's protege before she became SG and, and Neil himself of course had been acting SG so that, that on the in, in, inside baseball that was a sort of an interesting little development and and I'm with Neil and candidly the person as responsible as anyone for really being an intellectual architect of the anti-mootness theory is Vic Amar. Not, not Akil. Akil wasn't involved very much in this, but big shout-outs to my amicus partner, sometime co-author, oh, and kid
0: brother, Vic Amar. Yeah, no, it's it's true that uh, I have to say that I'm still mystified by the position of the Solicitor General's, General's office on on mootness. Here is the tweet, by the way, from Neil. Um, he was referring to an article in the National Law Journal Um, is the first to write about what really happened yesterday in Moore versus Harper. All our supposed allies, including the Biden administration's Justice Department, tried to get rid of the case, telling the court they couldn't decide it. We stood alone. We were right. If the court accepted those views, the nation would have never had this decision. So that was quite dramatic there, Neil. Um, And I'm completely mystified. Do you have any sense, Akil, of why the Justice Department did what it did there? I have no inside information. Okay. <laughs> do you have any outside information? Any thoughts well, you, about why uh, people, they might have done
1: it? People have listened to this podcast. Know I've been critical of other things. I was critical of what the SG said about um, precedent and the Dobbs litigation. Oh, we never overrule precedents just because they're wrong. Oh, my God, we do that all the time, actually. And the Creative 303 case that came down, Andy, just... Minutes into this podcast, as we were doing the podcast, talked about a case called Barnett, I think 10 times or something like that. Our audience should know we actually paused the taping just to look at because it, it's not as if we're actually reading the opinion while we're talking. Um, and, uh, but, but we, we just paused the taping. Barnett, which is a case about compulsory Flag salutes how the government can't compel certain kinds of uh, expressions like I salute the flag, government can't compel that. The Barnett case decided about 10 times by the majority in the Creative 303 case that opinion, just to repeat, overturned an earlier case called Gobitis just because it was wrong. That was a naked overruling, and there are many other cases that have done that, including a case called Erie versus Tompkins, which we may talk about later on in in the the podcast. So our audience knows I was very critical of the Solicitor General for certain things that she said about the nature of precedent in the Dobbs litigation. Look, it's a hard job. She's not a law professor. And why do I say that? That sounds so snarky, because actually by statute, the SG is supposed to be learned in the law and by tradition. In the first Judiciary Act, that sentence was a description of the, um, the job of the attorney general at some point, it got shifted over to the solicitor general who argues cases before the Supreme Court. But by tradition, this is a position that's often been held by a law professor. Um, let me identify just off the top of my head, seven or eight or nine. OK, so Irwin Griswold, dean of the Harvard Law School. When you go to um, Harvard Law School, there's actually Griswold Hall and Archibald Cox, who will later be the famous special prosecutor in Watergate. Another Harvard, a couple of Harvard folks, um, the great Elena Kagan, now an associate justice on the Supreme Court, Dean of the Harvard Law School. She was Solicitor General. Neil was her assistant. Charles Fried, another professor at Harvard Law School, very distinguished. He was Solicitor General. At Yale, you've got Robert Bork, uh, one of my uh, constitutional law professors. He was a Solicitor General. The great Drew Days, the late great Drew Days, was Solicitor General. Neil, acting Solicitor General, he's a professor at Georgetown. Walter Dellinger. We had a whole episode about Walter Dellinger and a big, you know, tribute to him when he passed. A distinguished professor at Duke. That's just off the top of my head. So by tradition, this has been a position held by law professors. She's going to rely on her staff, and maybe her staff gave her bad advice. I, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't think I've ever met her, and and I'm rooting for her, and she's. And and you and I were both impressed at how articulate she was at the oral argument in Moore versus Harper. But I think she was wrong, totally in in Dobbs, in what she said about precedent. And I was shrieking about it. I, I, I can't deny that because it's it's on tape. It's in the archives. And I think this was a mistake. And apparently Neil thought so too. And 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 Vic definitely thought so in his writings about mootness when it mattered.
0: And you know. Of course, Clarence Thomas picks up on it and uh, in his in his dissent, but uh, right. talked quite a lot about about mootness.
1: But okay, right. so and I respectfully disagree with my friend Justice Thomas on the, m- the mootness or the issue and on the merits. And it's just a reminder that thoughtful lawyers and judges and scholars don't always agree on
0: everything. On this one, uh, I'm with the chief. Okay, and so the question of mootness is now moot, I suppose. <laughs> So now, now we move on to the, to the merits. And uh, so now there's another section, of course, on this. Now we're on page 11 of the uh, opinion. And he starts off again with what he said before. The question on the merits is whether the elections clause insulates state legislatures from review by state courts for compliance with state law. Okay, now he goes into a historical uh, analysis of judicial review. And I thought this was just... I mean, I haven't asked you about it, Akhil, so maybe you have a different opinion from me. But I thought this was actually quite well done. It was, um, you know, a lot of people believe that judicial review began with Marbury versus Madison. That's sort of the high school teaching um, of that. And indeed, um, he does, you know, cite Marbury, um, famous quote from John Marshall: "It is emphatically the province and duty of the of the judicial department to say what the law is," but. He actually goes back um, 1786 case Trevitt versus Whedon and a lot more stuff. Um, And here he says some of
1: those cases are um, see, 1786. You see, there's no U.S. Constitution. So what the heck could he be talking about? He's talking about state courts invalidating or disregarding, declining to apply state statutes. As violations of the state constitutions, which create and shape and and bind state legislatures. So, first, the idea that state constitutions trump state statutes, and second, the related idea that courts actually can enforce those state constitutions, state judicial review, all before the Philadelphia Convention way before marbury and gordon wood writes about this my friend bill trainer dean of the georgetown law center writes about this bill and i went to yale college together we were Good friends in Yale College. We overlapped at Yale Law School. I, he actually asked me to edit his student note, which I did, which is about the Takings clause. I know our audience is sometimes just tired of, of of my name dropping, but this is a Marcus Constitution. It's a small world. you know. I, I know Neil Katyal, and I know Vic Amar, and I know Bill Trainer and we know Gordon Wood, and it all comes together. I don't claim I know John Marshall. Um, but his a portrait does hang in my office. Um, here's, though, what Philip Bobbitt insists on, and he's been on our podcast. He's absolutely emphatic that Marbury doesn't invent judicial review. He hates it when people say that. Judicial review was well established before John Marshall comes along. Here are four or five um, pieces of evidence. One, cases like Trevitt versus Win, State courts invalidating or disregarding state Laws as violations of state constitutions even before the Philadelphia Convention,
0: including now, in North Carolina. Mar- by the way, in Byard versus Singleton, um, yes. the North Carolina Supreme Court does that.
1: Correct, Trevor. If memory serves, is Rhode Island? Um, there are cases in New Jersey. Um, there are cases in um, North Carolina um, and, and several other places. There's there's a, a kind of slightly complicated case, Rutgers versus waddington uh, from New York. There there are several. A um, case in from Virginia. Okay. Low after the Constitution is adopted. Well, first, when it's pending, the people in Philadelphia, when it is being um, drafted, people in Philadelphia talk about these cases and they expect the federal courts to do the same thing. Federal 78 says, oh, federal courts are going to do this. And this is a good thing because it will enforce the Constitution. Anti-federalists say, oh, federal courts are going to strike down federal laws as um, violations of the federal constitution and that's a bad thing say people like anti bruce it'll give federal courts too much power and in response alexander hamilton um, says no it's a good thing because it's going to enforce the constitution which comes from the people he's not trying to approve judicial reviews in the constitution he assumes it's in the constitution he says that's the reason to vote for it so whether you're for it or you're against it you actually think it's about judicial review, and the first Congress, actually, when it passes its first Judiciary Act, um, is anticipating judicial review in a thing called Section 25 of the First Judiciary Act. Lower federal courts, are, st- and which are actually Supreme Court justices, rioting circuit, actually invalidate a federal statute involving pensions for invalids, veterans. Before Marbury versus Madison, it doesn't reach the Supreme Court because Congress changes the law. The Supreme Court As as, as an en banc court measures other federal statutes against the Constitution, but holds that they pass muster, very famously in a case called Hilton or Hilton, argued by Alexander Hamilton involving a tax law. All of this well before Marbury. Marbury's not making up any of this. So two propositions. Constitutions are supreme over statutes. That's true of state constitutions as well as federal and courts enforce constitutions against legislatures both state and federal final point and he says all of that and all that's in our brief by the way in our amicus brief citing among other people gordon wood and other briefs cite bill trainer and others there were only so many words that we had so so um because we thought neil's brief did a great job on that another briefs we didn't go into it in great detail one final point john marshall okay why would john Roberts cite john marshall in part because Roberts is not just any justice. He's a chief justice and he thinks a lot about former chief justices. Now he's less of an originalist. He's gonna emphasize precedents like the Rucho case and the AIRC case. There's some others, Davis versus Hildebrand, Smiley. But this is an originalist opinion as well as a present-based opinion, and he's going back to originalist precedents, founding precedents like Marbury. So he's doing more originalism in this opinion than you see in lots of other Roberts opinions. But Yes, John Roberts is especially interested in chief justices because he's a chief justice and two opinions in particular, I think, capture his imagination. John Marshall's, Chief Justice John Marshall's opinion in Marbury. Yes, yes, yes. And when you go to the Supreme Court, John Marshall looms very large. There's a huge statute of him in in the rotunda. It's massive. It's, It's almost like Abraham Lincoln in the Lincoln Memorial. And second, there's a case called Smiley in the early 20th century, handed down also by a Chief Justice. A una- writing for unanimous court, Chief Justice Hughes. So Marshall is writing for unanimous court as Chief Justice. Hughes is writing for unanimous. That's Marbury. Uh, Hughes is writing for unanimous court um, in a case called Smiley. And those two cases loom large in this opinion. And it's not a coincidence. And in our brief, we highlighted these were unanimous opinions by chief justices. And we did that Andy, candidly because we were
0: aiming right at John Roberts's heart. And actually just one more comment before we leave this Marbury itself, actually note says that we're that uh, in effect that we're not the first to say it. He says chief justice Marshall and chief justice Roberts has this in, in the opinion here. He says, um, That the idea that courts may review legislative action was so long and well established, that's a quote, by the time we decided Marbury in 1803, that Chief Justice Marshall referred to judicial review as, quote, one of the fundamental principles of our society, unquote. So in other words, he's recognizing that it existed prior to Marbury.
1: And not just judicial review, but the idea of constitutional supremacy and legislative subordination. Um, Here's what we had in our amicus brief. You know, I said, you know, listen with fresh ears to John Marshall's concluding passage in Marbury versus Madison. In declaring what shall be the supreme law of the land, the Constitution itself is first mentioned. That's the U.S a so, uh, uh, constitution and supremacy clause and not the laws of the United States generally, but only those which shall have been made in pursuance of the constitution have that rank. Thus, the particular, so that's a, a textual reference to the supremacy clause, which mentions the constitution first and says it's supreme uh, and only statutes that are in pursuance of uh, the constitution are binding law. Then Marshall goes on to say in Marbury, thus The particular phraseology of the Constitution of the United States confirms and strengthens the principle, and here's our emphasis added, supposed to be essential to all written constitutions, that a law repugnant to the Constitution is void, and that courts, as well as other departments, are bound by that instrument. So that's the basic idea in a nutshell. Legislatures aren't independent of the constitutions that create them, and courts enforce those. Um, that's true at the state level. That's true at the federal level. That's, uh, by the way, a repudiation of, of ISL theory in a nutshell.
0: Yes, and you know this notion of of things being void if they don't conform with the Constitution played an important part in this case in the oral argument as well when Justice Jackson uh, said on several occasions that the legislature is not acting as a legislature when it does so in violation of the state constitution, that its actions are void. Um, um, if, if the state
1: constitution can give um, certain issues, like congressional apportionment and districting to a, a special legislature referendum or initiative or commission process, if it can do all of those things then why can't it give it to the ordinary legislature and limit the ordinary legislature in all sorts of ways? And if the ordinary legislature is going beyond those constitutional limits, well, says Justice Jackson, to that extent, it's really not the legislature. North Carolina trying to distinguish the AARC case said, well, there's a difference between procedural limitations on a state legislature and substantive limitations. or yeah, we'll get there's to a difference that between giving it to some other body and letting the ordinary legislature do things but trying to limit that body and the courts actually saying no none of those distinctions make sense and our brief said none of those distinctions made sense so so yes 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 to all of that
0: all right so now in uh, part four of the opinion which starts on page 15 the uh, they actually get into the the case itself um, and once again the chief repeats, the overall finding, he says we we're asked to decide whether the elections clause carries out an exception to this basic principle, that is basically judicial review. As you recall, he's been spending some time talking about just judicial review and as a historical event uh, and a general principle. And he says uh, we hold that it does not, that is the clause does not carve out an exception. The elections clause does not insulate state legislatures from the ordinary exercise of state judicial review, and that phrase "ordinary exercise," uh, I think the court considers important. They don't really get into what it is, but they keep saying it. So you think they probably mean something by it?
1: Yes, it's the standard saying this isn't some weird exception to the two bedrock basic principles. Or maybe they're three. <laughs> I won't. They won't be eighteen. That state the Constitution's trump statutes. And that's true of federal constitutions trumping federal statutes. It's true of state constitutions trumping state statutes. And of course, federal constitutions also trump state statutes. So constitution trumps statutes and judges say what the law is. And the corollary is in general, ordinarily, state judges say what state law is. Um, Those are the ordinary principles.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. And now he starts to go into some of the cases and he starts with uh, Davis versus Hildebrandt. Uh, from 1916. I'm not going to go into that one right now. Um, he then moves on to Smiley, which is an important case. But I think we've actually discussed Smiley quite a lot. Um, and of course, you know, during the oral argument, I think we've mentioned this on the podcast before, first question out of Chief Justice Roberts' mouth had to do with, with Smiley and the governor's veto. Uh, and, and this sort of thing. So um, no surprise. You,
1: that- you and I were at oral argument because Andy, you never do things by halves. And you said, you know, you're the one who de- you wanted, who decided we're going to do the podcast. And, and and audience members, when Andy decides something, you know, he, he, he can be very persuasive. So I said, okay, we're going to do the podcast. And Andy said, we're going to do it every week, come hell or high water. I said, we're going to do it every week, come hell or high water, Simon says. And he said, listen, Let's do this brief because you actually care about this. You and Vic have written an article. This is important. It's, um, so, so we did a brief, and Andy was there at every stage, and not just kind of organizing it and coordinating it, but actually making really important substantive contributions at multiple points. And then Andy said, okay, now that we filed it, we're going to go down to oral argument. Because I don't think I've been to oral argument in 20 years. Um, maybe I've been to one. Thirty years ago, or something. But we went to oral argument, and we're sitting next to each other. And the very, I think that I think the chief was the first person to ask a question after the initial presentations by uh, the lawyers by seniority in the first round. It's it's not a pell mell, just sort of you know a free for all. It's reserved seating, as it were, you know, priorities like a priority boarding the airport. And he went first, and the first thing out of his mouth was kind of connected to well. Um, our governor's part of this. You know, what about Smiley? And Andy, you nudged me right then, you know, and we exchanged knowing glance because, like, he gets it. Okay. And with that, actually, we both, uh, you know, I'm thinking, you know, we get, we get him, you know, we get Kavanaugh. That's five. I don't know about, Bar- Bar- no one else. No one has said a word, but he- Kavanaugh votes with the chief 97% of the time. Okay. And we already had, I thought, you know, before, hello, Sotomayor, Kagan. Jackson so the first words out of his mouth I think okay he's getting it he's channeling a previous chief justice writing for unanimous court Hughes who's very well respected that's five he's in the majority he's writing on our theory that's the first you know four minutes of the oral argument you know and, and 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 you nudged me and that's what I'm thinking in my head
0: okay so I've actually gone back to the transcript now of course and actually, Justice Thomas asked the first question. I oh, okay. To, I have Let's to take say, it back. okay. But, but then, right after that, the chief says to uh, Thompson, the, the attorney for North Carolina, "You concede that state legislative action under the elections clause is subject to the governor's veto, right?" That's smiley, right? Yep. And so, yes, Your Honor, Chief Justice uh, says Thompson. Then Chief Justice, well, the governor is not part of the legislature. Why do you concede that point? And then he, the guy hems and haws. And he says, then the chief says, well, given Smiley, if your concession doesn't undermine your position, doesn't Smiley, I mean, that's a pretty significant exception. You have otherwise a very categorical case, and it's sort of, well, with this one exception. But vesting the power to veto the actions of the legislature significantly undermines the argument that it can do whatever it wants.
1: And if you if any audience member wants to see my debate at the Federal Society, I, I took Um, they invited me and John, you my friend and student to debate ISL in front of 500 FedSoc people at the annual convention at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C. And I start out saying, is the governor part of the legislature? Because in ordinary language, no, he or she isn't. But. You know, for this purpose, that's rock solid. And once you understand that, that's the case. Now, there were probably some Supreme Court justices, Jimmy, uh, some Supreme Court clerks um, in the audience there. I think I may have even, you know, seen one or two at the event. There are networks, intellectual networks, and here's what I want to uh, say about the Fedsoc event. Steve Calabresi, you know, who co-authors the the, the brief, um, doesn't speak for the federal, federal society, but co-authors the brief, told me afterward. He said, "You won that debate." I said, "Well, you're very generous." He said, "No, I polled everyone. You know, you won that debate." And here's second thing he said. He said. Most of them came in very skeptical of our position or on the fence, and they didn't want our position to be right because most of them are Republicans. And this, you know, uh, right now is a position that might favor Republicans because state legislatures are more Republican than presidential uh, electorates. And he said, and here's what this says about the Fed stock, which is what I've been saying forever. They actually are persuadable by ideas. They change their mind. They're an important entity and organization. They're part of the ecosystem. We don't ignore them um, here on America's Constitution. We try to engage them. So as soon as Robert said that, I thought this is very interesting. He gets that Smiley is, you know, conceptually the key case. Um, uh, he was a former oral advocate himself, uh, the best of his generation, um, and and once. You know, you concede Smiley. He's saying you've actually conceded the logic of your case, haven't you,
0: um, uh, petitioners? And here's yeah. why. Here's why he thinks that that's the case because, in the as we go through the opinion here, so he talks about Hildebrandt. He talks about Smiley. Okay, Smiley is, you know, eighty years old or something, or like, ninety years old. The case. And it was unanimous. But so the question is, you know, is there anything since then? that's that's changed the court's thinking and well what's recent well Arizona and Rucho so now he gets to that and he says and and hang on Andy on
1: that you see i think the logic of Smiley really supports Arizona if you can have the governor as part of the legislature even though in ordinary language she isn't quite if they, because legislature her name means now means in effect if smiley's right the lawmaking. making process as defined by the state constitution, not some institution that an in ordinary language, some entity we call the legislature. Well, if they can say the governor's part of that, and Smiley also says that was true at the founding on originalism grounds, New York had a council of revision. It was like a veto and they played a role in legislation, regulating congressional elections from the get-go. So that's originalism and Smiley says that, but if the governor can be part of the legislature, governor's veto or council of revision because of smiley and early practice why and if new york can do that under state constitution why can't arizona create a special commission in which the ordinary legislature isn't even a part or a special referendum that decides this issue or a special initiative that decides this issue and not merely as an adjunct to the ordinary legislature but you know just a different a, a different legislature in effect, legislature 2.0 or something for this purpose. That's what five justices said in AIRC led by Ginsburg. Now, of course, Roberts dissented and maybe he thought, well, governors are different than commissions or maybe he thought supplementing the legislature is different than displacing it or something like that. OK, but already he's on board with Smiley. Now, let's see how broadly or narrowly he he, he and others un- understand the, the Smiley uh, idea. But you and I thought and, and our brief said, gee, in Rucho, an opinion by Chief Justice Roberts actually embraced the ARC majority. So now with Smiley on steroids, it's that's the logic of our position. We're we're ninety percent home. If you have ninety five percent, if it's Smiley plus A I
0: R C. By the way, the, on the supplement versus supplant, which I think you know is is gone, you know after this, um, I think that uh, it it may not be completely insignificant that the way that Arizona got to having the independent redistricting commission um, was by amending the the state constitution. Yes. But the way the state constitution was amended is interesting. It was amended by referendum. The legislature itself had nothing to do with it, so that, so that, so it's only it comes straight from the people. So it's yeah. not so it's not like a brand. You know, the legislature saying, "Well, we're gonna." This is really just like a committee of, of ours or of something us. like that. Yes. yeah, but that's yes. not what happened. So first of all, the people do it without. Essentially, consulting them, and then the legislature sues them, so they, and and loses <laughs> and so, loses, right? So yes, so so that's interesting. So okay, so here, here's what he has to say on that. Um, the court recently reinforced the teachings of Hildebrandt and Smiley in a case considering the constitutionality of an Arizona ballot initiative. Voters amended Arizona's constitution. Okay, just like we said, and then he cites yes. the case. The Arizona legislature challenged a congressional map adopted by the commission, arguing that the elections, quote, quote, clause precludes resort to an independent commission to accomplish redistricting, unquote. Uh, A divided court rejected that argument. The majority reasoned that the dictionaries of...
1: Andy, Andy, hang on, because now he's contrasting that to the unanimous Courts like Marbury versus Madison, authored by the Chief Justice, Smiley, authored by the Chief Justice. I believe Hildebrand was also unanimous, and he's you know mentioned that, and he's acknowledging that in part because he himself he was in the dissent. Right. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. right.
1: But he believes in precedent, and good for him. That doesn't mean that sacrosanct, but it means you you start with it, and it counts. It's a weight.
0: I mean, one could argue that he has come to realize that he was wrong. It, perhaps
1: so. Yeah. He's, he makes it because he's now, the, the question he asked the oral advocate is a question he could have asked his um, earlier self mm-hmm. actually in, in AIRC. Well, once you can see the governor, what's the big difference? And, and we're left maybe with a supplant supplement distinction or the governor's part of the usual legislature in most places, whereas this commission in Arizona is somewhat distinctive.
0: Okay, so he goes on. He says, the majority reason that dictionaries of the found... And I'm not going to go quote, unquote, and everything. This is all quotes from the uh, opinion, and then within the opinion, it sometimes has quotes from other opinions. But I'm not going to go into that in reading it here. Um, Dictionaries of the founding era capaciously defined the word legislature and concluded that the people of Arizona retained the authority to create an alternative legislative process by vesting the lawmaking power of redistricting in an independent commission. The court ruled, in short, that although the elections clause expressly refers to the legislature, it does not preclude a state from vesting congressional redistricting authority in a body other than the elected group of officials who ordinarily exercise lawmaking power.
1: Right. That's the entity idea or something. Yeah. You can have actually a special legislature for this purpose. Uh, you know, just like a state can choose to have a bicameral legislature um, with two chambers, just as it can choose to have a bicameral legislature and gubernatorial presentment with a gubernatorial veto, it can choose to have, in effect, two legislatures or 27 for that matter, um, you know, for, um, for different purposes.
0: And wow. As- And that's the logic of AIRC. Yes. And he goes on to say the significant point for present purposes is that the court in Arizona recognized that whatever authority was responsible for redistricting, that entity remained subject to constraints set forth in the state constitution. Of course. I mean, the whole reason that they exist here is because the state constitution is amended. Yeah. Yeah. The the court dismissed the argument that the elections clause divests state constitutions of the power to enforce checks against the legislative power with this statement, nothing in the clause instructs nor has this court ever held that a state legislature may prescribe regulations on the time, place and manner of holding federal elections in defiance of provisions of the state constitution. I think we have that quote in our brief as well. I
1: I think we do. Yes. That's the pay. That's the
0: money quote. And he says, finally, the reasoning we unanimously embraced in Smiley commands our continued respect. A state legislature may not create congressional districts independently of requirements imposed by the state constitution with respect to the enactment of the laws. Okay. Now, so that so that's the end of that argument, that part of the argument. Now he moves on. Uh, and here he takes on um, some of what Justice Thomas will later say in the dissent. Oh,
1: Andy, hang on. It may not be in. Um, uh, I'm just looking quickly. It may not be in the brief, but it's definitely the article um, okay. that Vic and I wrote, and and we fed that quote um, uh, to our, our our friends who are writing o- other briefs. I just want to hang, highlight one word because it's associated, of course, very famously with Aretha Franklin. But it's it's the word respect. He says, you know, John Roberts actually. Um, uh, he doesn't mean he, he will always follow precedent no matter what, but he starts with a deep respect for it. He, he starts with the precedents, and he's not lightly going to overturn them. He understands that the burden of proof is in effect on him if he's going to say the precedent was wrongly decided. I think and he was a, in dissent, to repeat. And yet, once it's decided, he's a good soldier in general.
0: Yeah, although I have to say that it's, I think it has more than one meaning here. I think it has the meaning you just said, which it's a, it's a weight. it's a it's a default position. It's where you start. but this is not the start. this is the end of this art of this argument of this there's part real of the good argument.
1: counter Well
0: what it, but no but my point is that what he's saying here is, I think also is it we came into it with respect for it. It's unanimous. it stood to the test of time, etc but now having examined the reasoning, it contain it, it commands our continued respect yeah. in other words it stood up to our re-examination of it we've put it, it here uh you know on the scale again and once again it, yeah. it holds up so it's so that,
1: that, that's 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 what logic is logic kind of forces you sometimes even against your inclination into a certain position you know if you say well do you concede this yeah well do you concede that yeah well this plus that equals this other thing. It just, it follows, doesn't it? And and, and he, that this is like Socrates leading his interlocutor down the primrose path.
0: Yes. So now he's moving on to, to another related issue. And here, you know, the dissent he's uh, is, is taking into account. So he says the legislative defendants and the dissent both contend that because the federal constitution – Give state legislatures the power to regulate congressional elections, only that constitution can restrain the exercise of that power. So in other words, that, okay, maybe the legislature has to operate within some constraints but those constraints are only found within the federal Constitution, not within the state constitution right
1: there's there's a, con- a claim and this is where Thomas Justice Thomas is coming from that the Federal Constitution changes the ordinary rules and specially deputizes an entity that it conceives of as the legislature to operate as a special federal agency outside the ordinary normal rules of state constitutionalism
0: and state judicial review. Okay. So he responds to it and he says, first of all, this argument simply ignores the precedent just described. Yes. The smiley yes. and Arizona each rejected the contention that the election clause vests state legislatures with this authority independently. Yes. Um, and then he says, um, it also doesn't account for the framers understanding. So here's an originalist argument that when legislatures make laws they're bound by the v- provisions of the very documents that give them life legislatures the framers recognized are the mere creatures of the state constitutions and cannot be greater than their creators and that's a quote from ferrand so yes
1: yes uh, and t- uh, roberts isn't uh, didn't begin as an originalist he's an appellate lawyer And so he's making arguments basically, and not just a Supreme Court lawyer. He's a lawyer in the courts of appeals, and and there it's just precedent, 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 because courts of appeals can't overrule Supreme Court precedents. So that's what he cuts his teeth on. He clerks. His first clerkship was with a great precedential jurist, par excellence, think that Henry Friendly— for whom Roberts initially clerks was the greatest judge, perhaps of the 20th century, never made it on the Supreme Court. So Roberts begins as an appellate lawyer doing precedent. Then he's a lower court judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit. And what do you do? Press and press and press and because you're not allowed to overturn a binding Supreme Court case law precedent. And only gradually, does John Roberts begin to emerge, especially in this case, as an originalist? This is maybe his greatest originalist opinion. He's not disregarding precedent at all. He started his questioning with Smiley and then he, and he's building on Hildebrand and he's, and he's invoking Rucho. And as a good precedent person, he's going to follow it, even if he dissented in it, you know, unless there's a really compelling reason to, to overturn it. So he's still a precedent guy, but I'm not sure that I know of too many other John Roberts opinions that have as much originalism in them. And this is consistent with what we've talked about in previous episodes, that we're in the middle of an originalist revolution with cases like Dobbs and Bruin. Dobbs was An Alito opinion, very originalist. And Alito didn't begin as an originalist. He began more of as as a traditionalist type, but that's a great originalist opinion by Alito following his originalist opinion in City Chicago versus McDonald. And he's done others, but those are two big originalist opinions of the court by Alito. Originalist opinion of the court by Thomas. Is Bruin, you know, he may have gone too far in, in certain respects. He had written lots of other originalist opinions, but as concurrences or dissents, not as majority opinions, you see. Like a little concurrence that he wrote on a confrontation clause that that uh, predated Crawford. Okay. In Samia, he wrote an originalist opinion on the confrontation clause for the court. Which we discussed
0: um, so, last week, of course.
1: Exactly. So so he's done it, and Alito done it. Now Roberts is doing it. Why those three? They're the three most senior justices on the um, conservative side, the Republican side. They're going to be able to assign the cases to themselves when they're in the majority, and and these and any case that overturns a precedent or is on a major major. Issue by by definition, you know, those are the big cases everyone is watching, and far more likely for a justice, a senior justice, to assign it to himself or herself.
0: Yeah, I also think that in this section of the opinion, the thing that we've been reading about uh, the various precedents, and now what we're reading with the originalist arguments, and what on a passage that I'm about to read you, um, which immediately follows the previous one, uh, I think you can see him also bringing along. The liberal justices that are part of his coalition here, because uh, in, in terms of the precedents, he's echoing the arguments that uh, that uh, Justice Kagan made at oral argument. She she very very strongly took the attorneys through the precedents in a, in a powerful way, and similar to what we just read. And then you had Justice Jackson, and you can hear her in this next section here that follows. Uh, Again, what I just read, legislatures are the mere creatures of the state constitutions. That cannot be greater than, than their creators. Now it goes on. What are legislatures? Creatures of the Constitution. They owe their existence to the Constitution. They derive their powers from the Constitution. It is their commission, and therefore all their acts must be conformable to it, or else they will be void. And that's a quote from a 1795 case but you could hear Justice Jackson making similar arguments from the bench uh, in the oral argument we attended. And,
1: and it sounds like John Chief Justice John Marshall in Marbury
0: mm-hmm. Yes, although this was I think before he was on the court interesting sure,
1: but but yeah. John because John Marshall isn't making stuff up in Marbury despite what someone might have been taught in eleventh grade mm-hmm. or even in college for that
0: matter, or, or
1: um, in some law school classes, alas.
0: Okay, so he continues on with this. Later, he gets into questions of uh, another issue that uh, that was brought up in the dissent, which is well, um, you know, it's it has to do with the, f- the the function that the that the legislature is performing. That when they that sometimes they perform a ratifying function, you know, and sometimes if they're presented with a constitutional amendment, or sometimes they they they're presented with uh, you know some other function. Um, And the standards are different in those cases.
1: Yeah, legislature sometimes means an entity that includes the the governor and sometimes not, candidly. And in Article 5, it, it actually might have a different meaning than Article 1. Now, our brief discusses this. And candidly, in the literature... The person who far and away had discussed this more than anyone else before, let's say, 2018 was Vic Amar. And he'd written a lot of pieces on this. So he was ready when, when these issues came along. And, and these are cases like Lisa uh, versus Garnett, um, Hawk v. Smith, actually Hawk 1, Hawk 2, lots of these cases. And Vic actually, um, had written all about them. Who's the body that, for example, picks the senators before the 17th Amendment. Um, does that involve the governor or not? Is it um, a bicameral process or do they actually, does the, uh, the state legislature sort of meet as one uh, common mass? Again, what does legislature mean in different contexts in the Constitution? And Vic says it actually means sometimes
0: different things depending on context. And, of course, Smiley talks about that also. Smiley goes yeah. into the different – it actually enumerates all of the different roles or di- that a, or a legislature can play and then right. talks about what right. which applies to and,
1: women. And, and Justice Thomas really is relying on cases that do use the word – where the Constitution does use the word legislature, but not in Article One fashion. Not when they're making laws, when they're doing something else like ratifying a constitutional amendment – which is an up, down, binary, yes, no, in, out sort of thing that's very different than writing a law regulating elections in the usual way. And if the entity that's making the laws for state elections is somehow different and the entity that was making the laws for congressional elections, you're going to get all sorts of weirdness because one thing that most states do is try to coordinate the election. So the same rules for absentee ballots and uh, voter registration and, and precinct location and all the rest, same rules when you're voting for dog catcher, when you're voting for a state governor, uh, when you're voting for uh, a member of the House, a federal House or U.S. Senate or for presidential electors. It's all kind of one integrated election system.
0: You mentioned Hawk. He actually does uh, cite Hawk, and he said Hawk versus Smith, and he says a lawmaking under the Elections Clause, Hawk explained, is entirely different from the requirement of the Constitution as to the expression of assent or dissent to a proposed amendment to the Constitution.
1: Right. That's why I said yes, no, in, out, up, down, assent or dissent. That's different than writing a law.
0: He says by fulfilling the constitutional duty. To craft the rules governing federal elections, state legislatures do not consent, ratify, or elect. They make laws. Elections are complex affairs demanding rules that dictate everything from the date on which voters will go to the polls to the dimensions and fonts of individual ballots.
1: And to me, truthfully... That really sounds a lot like what Vic you – know, Vic was trying to explain this to me years ago because he's, he, he, he's written a lot, for example, about the 17th Amendment, about how senators were elected, and there were all these uh, questions, for example, about a smiley-like question. Is the governor involved when, before the 17th Amendment, the legislature is picking a U.S. senator? That, you know, and the answer is no, the governor might not be involved in that, even though the governor is involved when regulating a congressional election. So when you say
0: when you say might not, does it come down then to the state constitution? Uh, Yes. So. So in a way, it's similar. The state constitution defines legislature for the purpose of of certain (laughs) things in (laughs) a particular way. Differently. But it's also possible that there are some
1: federal parameters as well. Um, look, since I didn't need to become an expert on all that, I, I didn't, you know, I, uh, ask Vic, in okay. fact, um, uh, on that when we bring him on next time. Okay. See, I defer to people when they know more than I do. I, why can't the world be like this? Mm.
0: Yes, he's deferred to me twice in my life. <laughs> and then, find, you know, he kind of closes this section with another site to Arizona. Um, So basically Arizona says the same thing, fashioning regulations, governing federal elections, unquestionably calls for the exercise of lawmaking authority. That's a sight to Arizona.
1: And you see how he's beautifully, seamlessly toggling back and forth between text and history and structure of an original sort on one side and the case law on the other. Mm -hmm. And he's now seeing... It actually all fits together. Actually, hmm, maybe Justice Ginsburg was right in airc
0: in effect. Mm. You know, she could have written all of this just this way. Okay, so now he moves on to an, to the next section and where he takes on another argument that the uh, um, North Carolina attorneys, as well as Justice Thomas, make, which is this this procedural versus substantive differentiation. And he says, "Well, okay, Justice Thomas concedes." that some state constitutional provisions can restrain a state legislature's exercise of authority under the elections clause. You could have the governor maybe. Okay. But they read those cases to differentiate between procedural and substantive compl- constraints. Um, when it comes to substantive provisions, their argument goes, uh, our precedents have nothing to say.
1: <laughs>
0: um, so what does he say about that? Well, this argument adopts too cramped a view of our decision in Smiley. Chief Justice Hughes' opinion for the court drew no distinction between procedural and substantive restraints and Andy, on lawmaking. law. And Andy, note no, no yes. distinction. Note Chief that Justice. word, Chief, ch-
1: Chief Justice. Yes. yes.
0: Yeah. It turned on the view that state constitutional provisions apply to a legislature's exercise of lawmaking authority under the Elections Clause with no concern about how those provisions might be categorized and he cites okay. Smiley and Hildebrandt on that. Okay, so that first point is just a pure point about what the precedent actually says. And then he moves on to Arizona, the same same goes for the court's decision in Arizona, the defendants attempt to cabin that case by arguing the court did not address substantive limits on the regulation of federal elections, but as in Smiley, the court's decision in Arizona discussed no difference between procedure and substance. Right. And of course, the point was made during oral argument by the chief, when the governor vetoes, he doesn't have to say why he doesn't, and it could very well be that he's vetoing because of a substantive objection or a procedural one. So
1: there, it, you know, there's the argument from precedent, and there's also whether the distinction in this context makes really kind of any sense. And he sliced and diced. The North Carolina legislature's argument at oral argument and so did Justice Sotomayor that was one of her you know best interventions is when when she basically in a kind of Socratic exchange kind of you know said yes or no yes or no yes or no and and the lawyer was kind of on both sides and you know he says yes she said oh I thought you would you would have said no given this he said so he says no the next time she says ah you should have said yes there because because the distinction doesn't make very much sense here's what we say in our amicus brief at note eight Though some have suggested that the court could cleanly distinguish between state constitutional procedural and state constitutional substantive limits on state legislatures, such a made-up distinction in this domain is neither principled nor workable, and we then in turn cite to a passage in our piece in the Supreme Court Review um, where we make the same point. So um, it, it, it really isn't supported by the precedents, and in this quadrant, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't wash. And by the way, you And, you and ma- elsewhere the law is filled with distinction between substance and procedure. Sometimes you have to distinguish Um, it's just here it doesn't make
0: sense. Justice Barrett also grabbed a hold of this during the oral argument. She did. Oh, um, she
1: grabbed a hold of everything. She she was she was really impressive.
0: So, and so here's what what uh, is said here by uh, Chief Justice Roberts. He says, "The defendants and Justice Thomas do not in any event offer a defensible line between procedure and substance in this context.
1: That's the workability edit. that's different than the precedent point. That's tr- channeling uh, footnote 8 of our brief, um, which in turn cites to a footnote in Vicks and my article.
0: So what, he, so what the quote he has here is, the line between procedural and substantive law is hazy. And that's a quote from Erie.
1: But in the era, you have to have it, you know, like can't live with it, but you can't live without it. Right. You, you ha- but here you don't need it at all. It's just introduced, given that it's always fraught, you know, do it only if you
0: actually have to because it makes some conceptual, logical sense. And here all it adds is confusion. Right, and he, then he closes with the argument that's very similar to what we said earlier. He says, procedure, after all, is often used as a vehicle to achieve substantive ends. When a governor vetoes a bill because of a disagreement with its policy consequences, has the governor, this is exactly what we said, has the governor exercised a procedural or substantive restraint on lawmaking? Smiley did not endorse such murky inquiries into the nature of constitutional restraints, and we see no neat distinction today. Okay, so we've, we've gone through a lot of the uh, opinion, right? Uh, mostly the affirmative argument that the opinion makes. And I think that this, the part that we've gone through really puts the severe or extreme version of ISL to bed uh, for good. And even yes. the dissent doesn't really, other than this substantive procedural thing, which really didn't get any traction, um, and keep in mind, there were only two justices that signed on to that because Alito, Justice Alito did not reach the merits. Um, so other than that, they pretty much accepted, no, that that part of ISL is, is pretty dead. Um, so there's two other issues, at least, which we want to just broach now. It's Obviously, this podcast has been going on for a while. And we're going to come back to this stuff in more detail because it is quite important. But we know that from the questions that we've been Uh, receiving and from the news coverage and from what some other pundits have have said um, that there are some things on people's mind and basically they concern uh, the they're concerned with the question of whether or not the Supreme Court uh, or other federal courts for that matter have a role in reviewing the actions of these state Supreme Courts when they uh, when they engage in what now is deemed the proper function of reviewing the constitutionality under the state constitutions of actions by the legislature, whatever form that legislature is, whether it's a a redistricting commission or whether it's whatever, council of review, or if it's just the normal elected legislative body. Um, So whatever the legislative entity is, it's going to be reviewed by the state Supreme Court, no problem. But now is there going to be a situation where the federal court says, oh, no, you went too far. You can't do that. Um, we don't, we don't like what you did. This is not a good interpretation of the state constitution or yes, you did your job reviewing the state constitution, but there's also federal constitutional matters that you haven't considered. And we're going to, that's our job to review those. So those are things that people are worried about. Um, and, uh, there are reasons why they're worried about it, um, which are in the opinion or not in the opinion. In other words, in the opinion, in the sense that there's you know excerpts here or there which we can pull out and discuss that people you know quoted, and there are things that the court didn't say. Um, for example, they didn't say Bush versus Gore is dead meat, you know, or something like that. We we overrule. I mean, it wasn't a ruling anyway; it was a a uh, a concurrence. But at any rate. They didn't, you know, definitively, in some people's eyes, review it. So, Akil, let me get your, uh, you know, kind of overall assessment here, and then we'll get into the weeds in a subsequent episode, but can people sleep at night on those two questions?
1: Yes, um, and true, they didn't drive a stake through the heart of William Rehnquist's Coffin, so to speak. He, he was the lead writer for a certain group in Bush versus Gore. Justice Scalia was in that group and Justice Thomas. That might have been bad form. You have to remember John Roberts clerked for William Rehnquist. On some things, they're quite aligned. For example, they both are very skeptical, uh, have been very skeptical, were very skeptical in Rehnquist's case of race conscious affirmative action. So, um, we'll talk about that in, in another episode, but here, this is about as graceful a way of of burying um, Bush v. Gore as you can imagine, short of of being very express about the thing. Our audience should remember that Brown versus Board of Education buried. Plessy versus Ferguson, but it didn't say Plessy is hereby overruled. It said, oh, it doesn't apply here. Um, and then in later cases, it said it doesn't apply here and here and here. See Brown, see Brown, see Brown. and And then eventually everyone came to understand that Plessy was no more. The key word is this is ordinary judicial review. And if it's ordinary judicial review, that has two components, that state courts are ordinarily The definitive interpreters of state laws, including state constitutions, that's what's ordinary. And ordinarily, federal courts review a state court decision about a state law in a very deferential fashion. Here's the standard of review. They didn't use these words, but we talked about this in our brief. I think it's section seven of our brief question seven. Here's what ordinarily happens. And the the word ordinary is repeated again and again and again. When a state court makes a ruling on what a state law means, whether it's a state statute or a state constitution, the fe- a federal court, a U.S. Supreme Court reviewing that would intervene only if, for example, it's such an egregious misinterpretation as to violate fair notice, due process of law. Gee, you had no idea that that was coming because they just took something that said X and they made it mean The the moon is um, made of green cheese or something like that. Just completely no connection whatsoever to what the statute actually says or the constitutional provision X. So egregious as to be a violation of due process of law, just the rule of law, fair notice. Another way of saying that is if a state Supreme Court were dealing with a purely state law election for a dog catcher, for state governor... Is it such an extreme interpretation that the U.S. Supreme Court would try to get involved? And the idea of ordinary judicial review, we argue in our brief, and I see nothing really in the opinion that pushes hard against that, is that should be pretty much the same standard if it involves a congressional election or, for that matter, a presidential election. And here's another reason why, because it makes sense for state constitutions and state laws to actually – integrate state elections with federal elections um, so that the rules for to repeat absentee ballots for dog catcher and congressional representatives and u.s senators and presidential electors for that matter the rules for absentee ballots are the same the filing dates are the same uh, the precinct places are the same etc cetera, etc cetera. we have an integrated electoral system and if you're going to defer in the ordinary course to a state court decision when it involves a state election Gee, it, it makes no sense at all to try to have a different standard for federal elections. So, um and and the court didn't say that in great detail, but the word ordinary, which was repeated again and again and again, I think has that meaning. If you're looking for trouble, can you find it? Yeah, I suppose you can find it anywhere. And some scholars, you know, in part because they mispredicted. What the court would do, you know, um, are hesitant to admit that they were chicken littles and unduly alarmist and unfair to the court before it had even opened its mouth. But I see no genuine cause for concern. Could they have been a little bit more clear? Yes, but I think it's, it's clear enough and I'm going to sleep well and I haven't been sleeping, I wasn't sleeping well until this case came down. I had a pretty good feeling about it, but having a pretty good feeling is different than seeing it in black and white, and now we've seen it in black and white. That's my take. That's Vic's take as well, I think. I think that's Steve Calabresi's take. And Andy, offline, I think that's your take in general, too.
0: Yeah, I mean, Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence addresses this issue. That's really what it deals with. It really deals with this question. And so here's an so here's what he says here. This court, now th- it's prefaces by saying that the petitioners actually just didn't argue that the North Carolina Supreme Court misinterpreted the North Carolina Correct. Constitution. And, and so, so after that, he says, Justice Kavanaugh says, for now, therefore, this court need not and ultimately does not adopt any specific standard for our review of a state court's interpretation of state law in a case implicating the election clause. And then he quotes the, the main opinion on that. He says, instead, this court says simply that state courts do not have free reign and hold only that state courts may not transgress the ordinary bounds of judicial review. Okay, so that's basically what you said. Now the, and ordinary, then, ordinary, ordinary, ordinary. And then yeah. he gets into three different stand, standards that have supposedly been proposed. Justice Chief Justice Rehnquist's, Justice Souter, and then the Solicitor General in this case. Um, so the Solicitor General prelogger in this case proposed whether, that the standard be whether the state court reached a truly aberrant interpretation of state law. And what he says, right. Justice Kavanaugh, is, is, as I see it, all three standards convey essentially the same point. Federal court review of a state court's interpretation of state law in a federal election case should be deferential, but deference is not abdication. And then he has a footnote saying that in practice he thinks that all three of them would actually yield the same results uh, if you adopt any one of those standards. So ultimately, I think the reason that people would be worried in the context of all of that stuff is that Chief Justice Rehnquist in Bush versus Gore, even with this opinion, with this standard, which you say is so deferential, and the court says, implies, is very deferential, nevertheless felt that the Florida court's actions in Bush versus Gore met that standard. So, Andy, one key point math. It's six,
1: so we don't actually need Kavanaugh, truthfully. And remember, he was a litigant, you know, one of the lawyers in, in Bush versus Gore. She's eating crow here to some extent. And, you know, it's awkward for them to say that Rehnquist screwed the pooch, but Rehnquist screwed the pooch. And pre didn't want to say that because she didn't want to offend them. And Neil didn't want to say that, but I promised, you know, oh, Vic and I said that in our piece Maybe this is why it wasn't cited, because we use words like rubbish in the title, and we said it in our brief. And actually, the test, because it has a logic to it, is a due process test. Not You could say aberrant or something, but it's ordinary. It's well, well established if you teach Fed courts law, which I do. It's a due process test. Here's what that means specifically. It's the same test as if it involved a state election for the reasons I've identified, because the logic is that, that the, these two elections are actually have to be governed. They have to be governed by the, the same rules. Otherwise, it's just chaos. Now, pre didn't say that clearly, and so now here I'm kind of critiquing her again. And in part because I think they want it, they understand that the justices are friendly with Chief Justice Rehnquist, Chief Justice Roberts clerked for him. He's a hero to Justice Kavanaugh. So I think they soft peddled the point a little bit. And some of this, as I said, is face saving, um, to some extent, because it's a reversal and a welcome one on the part of justices like Kavanaugh. But again, unless you're looking for trouble, you're not going to find it because they're backing away. Because like Emily Latella, you know, they're looking at this and say, oh, never mind. Ordinary means ordinary. This is nothing. Special. I'll say it one final way. There are two versions of ISO, or two components. One, and it's all about what legislature means. Legislature as opposed to the state or the people, the state or the constitution. And that's a total K. They say, no, the, the people, the constitution defines what the legislature is procedurally and substantively. The second issue was, well, it's supposed to be the legislature rather than the court making a decision. But once you've caved on issue one, that's ultimately to be decided by the people of the state. If they wanted to, they could make a commission, the legislature. If they wanted to, they could make um, a referendum process or an initiative process, the legislature. If they wanted to, they could make a court, the legislature. It's all ultimately a matter of what the people of the state choose to do. And that's ultimately a question of state constitutional law. And it's just law 101 that as a general proposition, state courts are the definitive interpreters of state law. Absent something, you, know, you could call it aberrant if you want. I'd call it due process.
0: Right. Well, certainly I think I agree with that as what the result should be. And it says it in our brief. in our brief, and I refer everyone to section 7, of, of our brief, which as you may recall, or if you haven't read the brief, the brief is structured like an FAQ, frequently asked question, and this is one of the frequently asked questions: What's the role of federal courts? We anticipated that question, we answered it, and the answer is very similar. Basically, it's deference based on you know the Tenth Amendment and federalism. Right. And right.
1: but we but we had a logic to it, and we said there's nothing different here than anywhere else. And truthfully, at oral argument and in their briefs, prelonger and even Katyal sort of suggest some 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 standard applicable in this special quadrant there's nothing special in this quadrant once you understand that and we'll talk about this more i think probably in later episodes mm-hmm. that it can that um, a state constitution can do basically whatever it wants and ordinarily state courts construe state constitutions. And they said all of that Roberts did earlier in the opinion. And so it just, ours has a logic to it. So we're not making something up. We're just deducing, you know, we're following the clear implication of the logic of the situation.
0: Right. But I think of course, I'm trying to differentiate between the wisdom of our brief and what the opinion is actually saying, you know, um, and I think that just to, I want to wrap it up with two, two thoughts. One, is that your emphasis on the word ordinary, the ordinary bounds of judicial review, I think is quite comforting if you think of it this way. The court has been in a position since the founding to review actions of state courts on state state legislative actions uh, when it comes to election law. And they've never done it. Never. So what is ordinary judicial review of this? It's, It's to not do it. Okay, so and, that's, so so that's clearly, you know, so that's one thing that I think gives some reassurance. And, 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 and remember the word
1: ordinary is repeated, what, seven times in the opinion, something like that. So, and um,
0: then it's again uh, in the concurrent. So, so yeah. yeah, numerous times. So it is there now, and here's the other thing. Okay. Actually, um, so, Justice Thomas dissents in this case. He makes various arguments, which we're not going to get into right now. We some of them, they we already got into because the chief got into them. Um, but he ends um, with what I think he considers to be a prediction of, of doom and gloom. But actually, I think may fairly reflect uh, some of what we're saying. He makes a prediction about what's going to happen. So here's what he say, What he says, he says, in the end, I fear. That this framework, which is basically the framework we just described, will have the effect of investing potentially, potentially large swaths of state constitutional law with the character of a federal question not amenable to meaningful or principled adjudication by federal courts. In most cases, it seems likely that the bounds of ordinary judicial review will be your forgiving standard in practice and this federalization of state constitutions will serve mainly to swell federal court dockets with state constitutional questions to be quickly resolved with generic statements of deference to the state courts. So okay. you know, that's his prediction. Now he goes on to say, well, here's what might also happen. We'll deal with that at another point. But yeah. But his prediction of what ordinary judicial review is going to be is going to be, People desperately file 40 lawsuits like they did in the last election after the last election. And time after time, the court says, go home. Exactly. So if that's, if that's the situation, then, then we can sleep better. But anyway, we felt it was necessary to to let you sleep at night. Yes. Um, Relax. Yes. relax. ISL is dead. Bush versus Gore is, uh, comatose and, uh, unlikely to be resuscitated and, uh, and the, yeah, thank goodness yes, for that. DNR. Yeah, DNR <laughs> is right. For those of you who
1: don't know what that means, you, you, you can look it up in your urban dictionary. But Andy, as a doctor, knows what DNR means.
0: Yes, it's uh, what we used to call a no code. Um, okay, so next week, there's a whole mess of other stuff, and we'll probably get to, I would say, most likely the affirmative action case uh, next week, but we'll see.
1: And at some point, we're going to have to have some fun guests to talk about. Oh, yeah, about we've t- got,
0: yeah. We've got some great guests coming. Um, be, the thing is, the better the guest, the busier they are right now. So, so although they, you know, we have plenty of people that want to come on with us, we want to give them a chance for the for things to, to settle breathe. down. Yeah, yes. And then, but, the, but
1: we we will bring them. August will be a very good time. Yes.
0: Okay. Thank you very much, and congratulations to everyone that that worked on the right side of Moore versus Harper.
1: Big shout out to all our team, especially the Yale Law students who
0: helped us. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. Thank you.